If you know me well, you know that I am quite a sucker for seasonal decor. I love changing it out throughout the year, and I don't just mean Christmas and the biggies. Our household over turns over new decor probably seven to eight times a year, all the holidays, all the seasons, and I love it. I come by it naturally because my mother did the same thing in my home growing up. I also love to mark seasons with music. As a student minister, I would curate a mission trip mix every year that we would listen to from here to South Texas and back and all the back and forths. And if you play one of those songs today, I'm immediately taken back to the Orange Groves where we played Ultimate Frisbee and the people we worked with in South Texas. Summer mixes, Christmas mixes, And my husband now makes a mix for every vacation we take our girls on. We have a Colorado mix, and this summer, a Seattle-Washington mix. Maybe the weirdest part is I also love to mark seasons with smells. When I bought my first home, a single adult in my first job, I bought a candle called Bird of Paradise that was my new house smell. And I burned it for six to eight months. And when I smell it today, it takes me back to what it felt like to be 24 and buying my first home and that independence. I knew I married the man for me when he proposed to me in Salado on the Christmas stroll. And after I said yes, he walked me up the street to a store with a wall of candles and told me to pick our engagement smell. It's called Warm Cider, and it's been discontinued. But he gifted me one of those candles for our first, I don't know, seven or eight anniversaries. And I pull it out every year at that time of year and burn it. You may think I'm nuts and crazy, and that's okay. Um, But I think there's power in marking moments, in slowing down, in taking time to reflect and remember as part of the human experience. The Israelites did that. They had feasts and festivals that marked moments where God had delivered them, where God had done mighty things. They celebrated throughout the year in a cyclical pattern. And the early church came from that and created what is called the church calendar. Now, our church is not liturgical in our worship planning, so we don't, and just the way we practice, that's not something that we do. It's something that some churches do. Um, but I, I find it intriguing. We do, we're familiar with Advent, um, with possibly Lent and Easter and those sorts of things. But the church calendar, churches all over the world follow this cycle that marks the birth, the life, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And churches who participate in this, like they have colors in their sanctuaries for certain times. They have certain scripture readings, certain prayers that they repeat throughout that cycle, and they also preach from the lectionary, which is scripture readings that follow this cycle. When I was in college, I think I used those readings in my personal time with God as I read scripture, and it is not the only way to worship or even necessarily the best. I just think it's a cool way, and it's good for us to know perhaps how other people do their worship. So today, when I was asked to preach, I like an assignment. 
Um, There are probably a lot of things I would love to say, things that are on my heart, things that I would love to, to preach, but I picked the passage from the lectionary for this morning. And so as we read it today, know that there are people literally all over the world who are looking at this same passage today in one of the Sundays following Easter called Easter Tide. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles or look on the screens, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, which in in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, limping, or paralyzed. Now a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there and knowing he had already been in that condition for a long time, said to him, Do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to do it slowly, kind of verse by verse. Look at what, it's, what the context is and some interesting notes. And then we're going to wrap it up with three takeaways for us living in May of 2022. So the scene is set at the pool of Bethesda. Um, There's a picture that's going to be on the screens. I got to go to Israel several years ago and got to see it in real life. They have excavated. They believe this might have been the pool of Bethesda or perhaps another pool um, of like kind. This one is north of the Temple Mount. It was not unusual for healing pools to be near a temple. And it most likely, when it says five porticos, almost like porches, it had an overhang on top of columns that provided a natural place for people to gather and to sit. And it wasn't just a Jewish healing pool, but people outside of the Jewish faith also viewed this spot as sacred. In fact, at once it was dedicated to the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. So the scripture tells us in verse 3 that there were people laying all around. Women, men, the sick, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. The Greek describes it as frail, withered, weak. Lying all around, begging, sleeping, and waiting for their opportunity for healing. If you look in your Bible, chances are yours jumps from verse 3 to verse 5 with no 4 in the middle. Or perhaps your Bible has it footnoted. The reason for this is the oldest and what the scholars would view the best manuscripts that we have of this passage do not include 3b and 4. They call it a gloss, meaning down the way there was a scribe copying the gospel of John, got to this place and thought they might not understand why they were waiting and he needed in after the water was stirred. So the scribe added an explanation that just helps clarify it a little bit, but it was not in the original 
manuscripts. So I'm going to read it to you because I do think it helps us understand. After it describes the people laying around, it says they were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So they are waiting for that stirring of the water to be the first one in. Verse 5 tells us there was a man there who had been ill for 38 years. I always assumed he was paralyzed, the fact that he couldn't get to the water. But the Greek literally says he was in weakness and frailty for 38 years. Maybe he was sick from being sick. Maybe he was overcome with depression, loneliness, fatigue from chronic pain. Maybe he was paralyzed. We don't really know the details. We just know that he was sick enough to not function in normal society. And he spent his days by this pool, probably begging for food in order to survive. And this was his life. And 38 years would have been the majority of a life before modern medicine in this day. When Jesus saw him in verse 6, he knew He had been in this condition for a long time. And Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. Literally, the text says, do you want to be made whole? There's no indication that this sick man knows who Jesus is. This wasn't the Zacchaeus moment where he had heard what Jesus had done and the power he had. And he got excited that Jesus was there. The man probably didn't know who he was. And he doesn't even ask him to be healed since he doesn't know. And Jesus takes the initiative. Surely if Jesus knew he had been in that condition for a long time, Jesus knew he would want to be well. Why in the world would he ask him, do you want to be well? It's difficult to impose healing on a person who is comfortable with the way things are. Sometimes people like us don't really want to be well. Sometimes we're not comfortable with change or we're not willing to do or walk in the life required in order for things to really be different for us. So Jesus asks the question. The man's answer in verse 7 wasn't yes and wasn't no. It was why. Why he has not been healed. He says, I have no one to help me to the water. Every time he started moving himself toward the pool after it had been stirred, maybe he was crawling. We don't really know how he was moving, but every time he would go, someone would beat him to it and he was not healed. He had no one. He believed in the healing power of the water. The problem was his loneliness. Maybe you feel that way a little bit today. You feel isolated. You feel lonely. You feel disconnected and maybe even helpless. Genesis tells us we were made in the image of God. And the image of God, although I cannot understand it all, is three in one. God himself is community. God himself is connection. 
God himself is love, which is what happens in the midst of community. So when we, his creation, who were made in his image, are disconnected, are lonely, are isolated, our bodies, our minds, and our souls can literally become sick because we were made in the image of the communal connected creator. This man desperately needed human connection and care. I know that we, as humans, cannot do what Jesus did. We can't bring about that kind of healing for a person. We can't rid bodies of cancer. We can't orchestrate or force reconciliation in a broken relationship. We can't remove the cloud of depression or the stress brought on by anxiety. We can't do what Jesus did at the pool this day. But y'all, there is a measure of healing in the bringing of a meal. And there is a measure of healing in a conversation. And there is a measure of healing in a card. There is healing in just being with someone. Donald Miller writes, the answer to most of our troubles is rarely a right idea. It is often just a person who will sit with us. Can you imagine the difference in this man's life? Same scenario, sick, by a pool for 38 years, if he had had someone with him. Maybe someone who just came for a couple of hours a day, brought him something to eat, brought him something to drink, spoke words of hope when he had none left to speak to himself. How his situation would have been different. One of the heart-rending stories of Mother Teresa of Calcutta is about an untouchable who had lived beyond all human care. He had lived on the streets or wherever he could find a place to simply be. Dying, he was brought by Mother Teresa to her shelter and he was cleaned and he was cared for. His words to her were, I have had to live my life like an animal, but now I can die like a human being. Just simply being with people brings some healing. Maybe my perspective's off and I'm completely wrong and you can tell me later. I'm not sure you could convince me. But I think the generations above mine, my parents and their peers, my grandparents and their peers are better at this than my generation and the one behind me. I think they're better at being with people. I think they're better at thinking of people and knowing how to respond in those situations. Obviously, this isn't uh, true of every person in every age group, but generally speaking, even within our church, when people are suffering, you can see how the different age groups respond. And I thought, I spent some time thinking about it this week, like, why? Why would that be different? Because I was raised by my mom, right? And if she's thinking about that, then wouldn't that naturally be kind of passed on? But I want to pose a possible explanation. I love social media. I love the, my favorite thing about it probably is how every day it pops up things that have happened in years past on this day. I see pictures that are fun. I love the way I can know what's going on in people's lives that I haven't seen in real life or talked to in years. 
I know this week from social media that my college roommate and her family just got a really cute dog named Charlie. And Megan said they would never have a dog. But I saw his picture. He's a really cute dog. I know a friend of mine from middle school buried his dad last week. And I know that a friend from high school just got a job promotion that she's really excited about. I also know one of my favorite professors from Baylor is currently walking through the later stages of dementia with his wife. I know these things and social media allows me to feel connected to them. But they do not feel my knowing. I can read all about them, know everything that's going on in their lives. I know it. They don't know that I know. So social media is a gift, but it is, it is a, it's a hindrance unless it propels me to action in response to the things that I know. We can't let our knowing take the place of real, real life connection and care. There's an opportunity coming up here at our church. Marilee Reese and Sandy Hankins are starting a group that's going to meet on the first Tuesday of every month at 10 a.m. somewhere in the building. Um, And they have already started creating a list of people that they are going to care for in a very intentional way. There is actually a good number of people who have loved our church, served in our church, given to our church for decades, who over the past two years, between COVID and other life circumstances, they cannot be here anymore on Sundays or anytime. You can imagine the disconnect that comes when your church family now is, you know, there's a gap and you're not there for worship and ministry together. So this group is going to write cards, they're going to make visits, they're going to make calls, and they are going to remind those people that they are loved, that they are known, and that they are missed. And if any of you feel that tug, I want to encourage you to reach out to Sandy or to Marilee. I think if the group gets big enough, it could even have an evening meeting, and that kind of work is endless. There are always people who need That kind of intentional touch. I love what Dallas Willard says about the way we care for one another. Love is not a feeling or a special way of feeling, but the divine way of relating to others and oneself that moves through every dimension of our being and restructures our world for good. Our call to be about caring and being with people is one that should actually restructure our days, our schedules, our priorities. There should be lots of interruptions in my plans for the day if I am to be about that kind of caring for people. Verse 8, Jesus tells him, stand up, take up your mat and walk. The Greek word for stand up literally means to waken and to rise up. It is resurrection language. It's the same word used for Jesus, resurrection from death to life. This getting up, this rising is not just this man getting up from the ground and walking and going about his merry way. This is the language of new life. This is Jesus saying you have a whole new identity and purpose and path ahead of you. This is brand new. 
At once the man was made well, took up his mat, and he walked. Can you even imagine having laid there for 38 years and a man comes up and after a conversation you get up and you walk away? The man never expressed any faith or belief in Jesus. And he didn't even say thank you. Terrible manners. <laughs> there are times in scripture where Jesus says your faith has made you whole. There's a circumstance in scripture where people's, the friend's faith made the man whole. But there are times in scripture and in life where God grants grace and mercy and love to an undeserving, unresponsive party just because of who he is. And that is the situation that happened to this man. The last thing we know from the text is that this healing, this resurrection, this new life happened on the Sabbath. We're not going to read the rest of the chapter. But I think we kind of know how that story goes. The religious leaders, the church people were very concerned about their rules, about the rules God had given them, in a sense. And they were so concerned about these rules that when Jesus broke them, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, when he did something they didn't think he should be doing, they got angry. And over time, these interactions built in intensity and ultimately led to the cross for Jesus. A famous pastor and theologian, Karl Barth, wrote in his famous 1919 commentary on the book of Romans, he tells a story about a people who live in a wilderness alongside a canal. The canal was there to bring them water and life to this remote location, and it was with great effort and cost that the project even happened for their place and their time. Great sacrifices were made, Many people died in the process of the canal being cut through mountains, through the desert, all the way to these people. But the great irony is that at one point the canal became dry. You could still see on the walls that water had once run through, but there was nothing there anymore that gave anyone any kind of life. Nevertheless, the people continued to service it to defend it, to name their children after the architects and engineers of this canal for years and years and years. But at this point, it is just a historic thing. A canal that was meant to convey water and convey life is now an end instead of a means. People tell stories about it instead of drinking from it. And each generation as it passes seems to lose part of what that canal was supposed to be in the first place. And no one has a memory of what it looked like to have water running through it anymore. His warning to the Swiss and German church following World War I is a word that we should heed today. The possibility always exists that my life, my church... My denomination, my worship music preference, my doctrine, my theology, and even my Bible will become relics of religious curiosity instead of instruments of the living God in my life.
These things, doctrines, theology, scripture, worship, all these things are good. But they're the means. They're not the magic. (laughs) They are the pathway. They are the conduit. They are not the power and they are not the life. And when we spend our days focused on those, defending my view, your view, why you should agree with me. When we spend our time doing that, there are people by a pool who need healing. Following Jesus in this day and age is complicated. It's hard. And if we didn't know it before 2020, we know it now. It's hard to even be with people who also follow Jesus because we see things so differently. And in my 42 years of life, I have learned that there are people who love Jesus with every ounce of their being, who value God's word as living, active, powerful, effective for changing lives. Some of those people know all of the Greek, all of the Hebrew, all of the historical context. They are intelligent, wonderful human beings. And when they read God's word, they come down in different places on big issues. Did you hear me? They all love Jesus. They all love his word. They all view scripture as powerful and hold it with reverence and respect. And they all, they come down in different places. That has always been the case. And it always will be the case. This side of Jesus coming back and telling us how it all is. We are going to disagree. We are going to see things from completely different places and we run the risk of focusing on all of that and ignoring the water the life the healing so what is it for us today from this passage may of 2022 we don't really have healing pools Hot tubs can provide a little bit of help at times. Three things for me as I leave the study of this passage. You may have heard something completely different, and that's okay. But I'm going to share my three with you. Number one, I am part of God's plan in bringing healing to others. That has always been God's plan. People all around us in search for healing. Some of it physical. Some of it emotional, spiritual, social. You name it. We live at the pool of Bethesda. There are people all around us who are seeking healing and wholeness. And I find it easiest to say, I'm going to pray for you. And I will, I will pray for them. And I think prayer is valuable and important. But what this passage tells me is that often I am part of the answer to the prayer I am praying for someone else. I'm praying for hope for them, 
Maybe I need to be the voice of that hope in real life to them. I'm praying for resources. Maybe I need to be the one to supply those resources. I can't heal. I can't take all the problems away. But God wants me to be part of the healing process he is doing in the lives of people all over the world. And we all have a role in that. Number two, Jesus makes all things new. Just like Dr. Vong said last week, our lives are not a piece of fabric that have been torn and Jesus comes in and puts pretty patches over the holes and, you know, makes it better than it was. No, Jesus brings a whole new, a whole new sheet of fabric. There is not a part of my life that is left in an untouchable place for his transformation, his healing, his changing my perspective. There's nothing that's off limits to Jesus making me new and making you new. And there's nothing that has happened in my life that stands in the way of him doing that for me. And number three, and maybe the most important for church people, is am I focused on the canal or the life-giving water? When I think about that pool, I wonder how many people missed out on healing because the church people were really busy with religious policing. How would the story have played out differently if the church leadership had spent part of their Sabbath by the pool, giving people water, bringing them some food, giving hugs, speaking a word of encouragement. How different would that have been? So when I step back and look at this whole thing, from people needing Jesus to healing from Jesus to the fact that it was on the Sabbath and all that followed that, It is really clear to me that people in this world, including myself, still need the grace, the love, and the mercy that comes only from the person of Jesus, ultimately. Comes from him. There are lots of hurdles and boundaries and walls and definitions that stand in the way of people knowing and finding the grace and love and mercy of Jesus every day. And some of those boundaries and walls can be me and you. So it seems like we stand here with a question from Jesus to us. Will I be part of the bringing of healing to people? Will I be aware? Will I see people? Will I reorient my life in such a way that I move in action when people are in need? And God is able to use me to bring about wholeness for others? Or am I going to be a hindrance, a canal, a hurdle, and just simply standing in the way? Which one, which path will we choose? Jesus, I thank you so much that you are our healer.
God, that you make all things new, that you have the power, the miraculous power to do things in our lives, even when we have nothing good in us and nothing to, nothing, no reciprocation. God, you love us completely. And God, I pray that as we move into this week, for myself, that I would have eyes to see people, the hurting, the lonely, those who are disconnected, those who are physically suffering. And God, help me. Help me know what my role is. How can I help? How can I speak or act in such a way that brings your kind of healing to them? It is such a privilege to be part of your plan, God. It's a gift to be able to be in the story of restoration, of hope, of healing, of mercy and forgiveness. God, that's where I want to be. That's where I want our church to be. Help us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is the time that we call the invitation. Because every time we have an encounter with God, whether it's reading his word, participating in worship, or watching a sunset, or wherever it is that we encounter God, there's always a response, always. Even doing nothing is a response. And so today... We have the opportunity to respond to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Maybe you are lonely. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need the hope found in Jesus. And you want to know more about that. We would love to tell you what we've experienced and walk with you as you experience it for yourself. Maybe part of the loneliness and isolation is you don't have a church family. Church can be hard. I'm not lying. I can tell the truth. Church is hard. But we need each other. We need community. We need connection. We need care. And God set it up to be something like this. And so if you want to walk with us, we would love to walk with you. Or maybe you're like me today. You have a relationship with Jesus. You are a member of this church. And it's just time to start being part of the healing. Whatever our response is, you are welcome to share it with someone. There will be ministers up here that can pray with you, that can provide words of hope. Or maybe you're going to share it with your family member. Or maybe you just respond in worship as we sing. God knows your heart. He also likes for us to tell him what's on our hearts. So take this time to do that.